If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Adria Thompson. She's a speech-language pathologist and online dementia care educator with a dedicated online following of over 310,000 caregivers. Her succinct and practical video content covers a wide range of topics, offering clear solutions to everyday challenges faced by caregivers. Adria's mission is to provide understanding and actionable advice, empowering both professional and personal caregivers to navigate dementia care with confidence and compassion. Welcome to the Swallow Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Adria. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I know we had to reschedule a bajillion times here, but I'm super, super grateful for your patience and I'm so glad we're able to coordinate and we are getting hit with massive tornadoes right now. So if all goes dead, then that's what happened to me. So anyways, thank you again. Of course. I mean, it's just fate that we finally got to be together because we've had so many issues. And if a tornado comes, it would just make sense, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. My name is Adria Thompson. I am a speech language pathologist in Kentucky, and I'm also the owner of Be Light Care Consulting, where I specialize in dementia and I provide online videos for I think 320,000 followers right now, all about dementia. Yeah. 
I know when I, when I first saw some of your stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, this is someone that actually like speaks my language of like working in long-term care. Like I worked in skilled nursing for 15 years. Like that is my setting. That is my jam. And it's just, you know, so many people always talk about the horrors of skilled nursing and long-term care. And I'm like, no, I, no, like I, my heart and my passion is, is so there. And I, I just, I love everything you're doing. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, thanks for saying that. It's definitely a passion of mine too. Yeah. All right. So, so where should we start? You know, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about what got you into sort of spreading your message in this way. Yeah. Well, like you, I've spent my career as an SLP in long-term care. So I've worked in skilled nursing, assisted living and memory care communities. And I travel, like move around a lot. So I've been, I've worked in nine different communities in nine years and I saw a lot, a lot of different things. But one thing that was consistent was that people with dementia weren't being served well, their needs were not effectively being met. And I felt like consistently I was seeing that not just speech therapists, but Therapists in general were not equipped or confident in providing really good services for people with dementia. I'm not currently working as an SLP. I'm running this business. But the last time I worked in a community was in a memory care and uh, actually in forward memory cares. And I just was really discouraged by how few people my therapists colleagues were picking up on caseload, even though they desperately needed help and they needed assistance that we could help with. And so I started providing some education just for my coworkers about stages of dementia and like how we can use that to guide our services and inspiring, I guess, some creative approaches and therapy. And my therapy company noticed and asked for me to create a dementia program that then could be trained in all the communities um, that this company owned. And so I did that with a, uh, with an occupational therapist to help me out. It was like a 45-page document. We traveled around and trained, and then COVID hit, of course. And um, so that really built my confidence, like, A, I know what I'm doing, and B, that people can learn from me in a way that's like effective and that actually is changing people's lives, like our patients. So we moved to like from Lexington, Kentucky to Washington State in 2021, had to quit my job. And I was like, I can do this on my own. So I started to be like care consulting and I guess the rest is history. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I, I, what it was so interesting. I, I remember, um, gosh, it was a few years ago and I was, I had, I was supervising a few CFs. I was covering a few different, few different facilities. And I remember two of, they were sister facilities, two sister facilities and one facility, anybody that came in on a dementia diagnosis, the SLP picked up, you have dementia, you all of a sudden get speech therapy, whether we think you need it or not. The other building, the sister facility who had the same parent company, they, the SLPs were not allowed to service anybody with any patients with dementia because it was part of their quote unquote condition. And there was nothing that we could do to manage it or progress it or anything. So it was, I just remember being so confused about what our role is. And I think, and there was so much conflicting and contrasting information. And I remember just, I had a CF come to me one day and she's like, I just, I don't even know what to do because the other CF at the other building, they, you know, they were really, really close friends. She's like, she's not allowed to see these patients at all. I'm supposed to pick up every single patient and I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with them. And, and that just got me thinking. And, and so I'm, I'm glad you're talking about, you know, really what, 
what is our role here and what truly can we do and can we actually help them or do we just help them manage the condition better? And I know you talk a lot about caregivers too, and I'm excited to get into that in a minute, but. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There is a lot of rhetoric about dementia in the therapy world, not just SLPs, but OTs and PTs too. And there's a lot of these beliefs and statements that are said with authority that like people with dementia can't benefit from therapy. They can't get better. It's not appropriate. It's not, um, they're not appropriate. They're not a good candidate for therapy, you know, all these things. And we just sometimes, if we don't know any better, like we hear that and we're like, oh, okay, like that's the rules. That's what I do. And I found the same thing working in so many different places Every company and every therapist had a different perspective about it, and they all very much believed they were right. <laughs> yeah. Can Can you go into that a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what what's your perspective on this? I, I obviously know your perspective, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. So bottom line, if you hear nothing else on this podcast episode, SLPs have a huge role in providing care for individuals with dementia. And we absolutely can be an effective and valuable, if not the most valuable part of the team when it comes to providing medical and just quality of life care for people with dementia. So we'll just throw that out there from the very beginning. Let me tell you why I think that. Um, Well, first of all, research shows that. ASHA has a great uh, portal, you know, that you can look up dementia evidence-based interventions and research to show that there are absolutely um, things that we can do as SLPs to improve the lives of individuals with dementia. Now, many would argue that improving the lives of people with dementia isn't our role. How is that like billable? Is that scale? Is that measurable? Is that, you know, all of those words the insurance will really look at? And I totally understand that perspective because on the surface, people with dementia aren't getting better right? It's a degenerative neurological disease. So on paper, we know people with dementia will continue to get worse. And that seems to go against the rehabilitation model, which the very definition of rehabilitate is to restore and recover skills that were lost. But that is not the only thing we do as therapists. We also have a big role in habilitation services. And so this is a law. This is like very much a thing that individuals who have degenerative diseases can still receive therapy for habilitation. And habilitation says, of course, yes, there's an illness, an injury or condition that occurs. And instead of trying to restore or recover the skills that were on the other side of that injury, the the things in the past, instead of trying to restore it, what we're doing on the other side of that condition in the current time is we are going to be maximizing their abilities and their skills. And we want to make them as independent, as safe, and as happy as we possibly can where we are now. We do that for individuals with Parkinson's disease. We do that with individuals with ALS. We do that with people who have had a stroke. Absolutely, we can do it for people with dementia. So I think that's really the biggest thing is to see that it's not if we're looking only at rehabilitating people. Yeah, you will run into a lot of cases where someone with dementia is not going to fit that role. But habilitation is absolutely a skill and it's absolutely a necessity for most people with dementia. Awesome. Thank thank you for that, Adria. Talk to me a little bit about dementia staging and where specifically we come in, because, again, I've worked in some facilities where 
the patients have to have progressed to a specific point in dementia staging before we can intervene. And there's other places that say, no, once they get to that stage, you can't intervene. So is there a role for us across the entire continuum? Yeah, I'd love, love to hear your what you think. So simple answer, yes. There's a role for us everywhere. Um, staging is is challenging because it's something you can't quite uh, wrap your mind around or your hands around in any specific way because it's not a diagnosable thing. So here's here's what happens with staging. There are many scales that exist that describe the changes that someone with dementia experiences over time. There are a lot of scales and none of them are better or worse than the other, but we've got the Allen cognitive levels. The um, Tipa Snow has the GEMS model. I use the global deterioration scale. All of them put numbers or descriptions to a person when they're exhibiting a certain kind of symptom that reflects where they are in the process. Did they just get dementia? Is this really early? Or are they super progressed and this is towards the end of their life? So if we just use the global deterioration scale as our point of reference here, that's a scale from one to seven, one being normal cognition and seven being the most severe it could potentially ever get. Now, who stages individuals with dementia? It's difficult to say because sometimes no one does and sometimes everyone does. The thing is, is most doctors and neurologists will use the stages uh, that are very subjective, which are mild, moderate and severe or early, middle or late. They don't use a scale necessarily that's numerical that will describe that. Some neuropsychologists will use scales and might describe someone in a stage. Many, uh, but as a speech therapist, we have tools and the ability and the skills to use scales like the global deterioration scale to determine a stage. Now, in my personal documentation, I have worked over this a million times over the course of my uh, career trying to figure out what's the phrasing that I can use to describe the stage that someone is in that's not diagnosing them with dementia, you know, but also describing their cognitive abilities. And what I've landed on is the brief cognitive rating scale, which is an assessment we can use to determine what global deterioration scale they are. Brief cognitive rating scale utilized to assess patients' cognitive abilities. Patient scored this number, which indicates a global deterioration scale of this number. Those are just the facts. Now, am I going to families or doctors and saying, well, I diagnosed them at a stage? No, but we just know that these stages help us understand what expectations we should have of them, what support and supervision level we should have with them. Now, across all stages and across all types of dementia, communication will be affected in some way. It's not always their verbal expression, not always their reading or writing abilities, but it's just their ability to communicate with the world and express their wants and needs. And so my thought is always wherever the person is on the scales and whatever kind of dementia they have, I ask myself the question, if they could more clearly communicate their wants and needs or their perspective in this moment, would caring for them be easier? If you can answer the question to that, that question, yes, then you have a skill that you can provide them that will benefit them. Heck yes. Heck yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, let's let's move into talking a little bit about caregivers. Not there's yeah. anything little about talking about caregivers because it's a it's a huge, 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 huge role of responsibility. 
I have my son that has complex special needs, complex medical needs, and just being a caregiver for him, I do have a wonderful, wonderful village, but I just think about what happens the day that one of my parents need me, you know, cause they're a huge mm-hmm. support for him now. And I just think of how does that look being a caregiver to him and then also trying to be a caregiver to them. So caregiver burnout, caregiver burden, that's all huge topics that I'm, I'm so, so passionate about talking about. So thank you. Cause I, I think you do a great job of bringing those topics to light because they're not, they're not talked about very often. Yeah. Caregivers are essential. They're more important than us as SLPs. We have to realize that. And that's one thing I didn't, um, you know, I look back over the first few years of being an SLP and talking to a caregiver, having to call for authorization or to notify them of discharge always gave me so much anxiety. And I just thought, well, like, why do I need to talk to them? Like, I know what I'm doing. But even when someone's in a care community, that doesn't mean that a caregiver role ends. Um, and so they still very much need to be in the loop. Now, this is definitely going to be relevant for therapists who are in home health, right? That are, or outpatient that's working one-on-one with, with caregivers and see them all the time. But here's the thing we need to think about as SLP. If we're interacting with someone with dementia and they're experiencing some difficulty, I often ask caregivers, what's the hardest thing in caring for Bob, for your mom, you know, whoever it is. And the way I would have asked that question probably early in my career was, does Bob need any speech therapy services? Would he benefit from speech therapy? And what I was doing there is like putting the weight of understanding what we do on yeah. their shoulders. And then through that lens, they have to like determine what's appropriate and what's not. And that's wildly inappropriate thinking back because we no one knows what we do. We don't even know what we do half the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just saying like, what's the hardest thing in caring for them? And sometimes they might say, Oh gosh, giving them a shower is so hard. Like they don't want to. And early in my career, I would have thought, Oh, well, that's an OT's job. I'll tell them. But what else? But what I've realized so much is that when we ask, like, what's the hardest thing in caring for someone? We need to be like deeply investigating why those things are difficult. Because often when someone says something like an ADL, it's actually communication that's breaking down. And so if there is a challenge that a caregiver is experiencing and we have the skills and ability to give them some insight that might just allow them to like, okay, this is normal, like to take a breath of relief and think, oh, this isn't just I'm not alone in this. That's a skill. If we have an opportunity to give them a quick little tip and how to say things a little differently so that that skill could be easier. That's a skill and that's so needed. But what we do when we look at someone with dementia and we say they're not appropriate, they're not a good candidate, I'm discharging them because they have dementia, is we're saying, caregiver, you have what it takes to figure it out on your own. Like, good luck. And they don't. They don't. No caregiver, regardless of the person you're caring for, has ever signed up for it. No one has asked for it. Nobody has wished this situation upon themselves. Even if you step up and do it, it's not the role they want to have. That's not the relationship they want to have to that person. I would rather it be simple. And so if we can take the weight off, so important. And the other thing I want to say about caregivers is for SLPs to realize that in some capacity, we are also caregivers. We are giving care. We are partnering with someone with a need. The aides on the floor and the nurses, we're all caregivers. We can be collaborative. 
it is an important aspect when I started realizing that I was a caregiver too. It made me realize like I need to learn from others also, and I need to share what I know to others. Yeah. I think I I love what you said. Thank you so much because exactly nobody, nobody goes into this wanting this to be their role. You know, no, nobody says I want to be a caregiver for watching my mother with dementia just really decline. No, nobody says that. Right. And, and I think that's something that I wish SLPs had more support in, in sort of these, this trauma informed care counseling skills mm-hmm. with you have this one vision of, of this person. And then to all of a sudden have those skills be removed. There's this entire grief process that goes along with it too. And I think, you know, some, so many times when I was dealing with my son, when he was r- really, when we were in the thick of it, right. When he came home from the NICU, there was just so much I, I had so much grief to dig through with watching this happen, let alone actually navigating the situation. So I think, you know, we just don't do a good job. We're just not trained well on how to navigate these situations and have these conversations. And I love what you said about, you know, what speech, speech therapy services do you need? Because I do remember I, there was an OT that said, you know, well, what OT skill or services does your son need? And I was like, I have no idea what you do or why my... Yeah. I have, I don't know. Yeah. And I remember and you actually know more about OT than most people. <laughs> and, and finally she was like, Oh, well, does he do this or does he do that? And she was talking about all these different sensory things. And I was like, yeah, he does all of those. And she's like, okay, well then he, he really needs a sensory OT. And I'm like, I, how was I supposed to know that? Like, and so I think of those things in that, in that we expect them to know what we can provide when we don't even know what we can provide half the time. But mm-hmm. thank you for saying that, Adria, because I think that's something that is is really important for us to improve upon. And I also think it's a big shows a big way for the the rating scales, the the patient reported outcome measures, anything like that that we can get. Those always help me so much, I know, because I'm like, oh, I didn't I didn't think of that. I didn't realize this was that context, that this is the information you're looking for. And I think those can be so beneficial with start, sort of opening that dialogue between the caregiver and the provider. I don't know if you use a lot of those or anything that you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times I was like scared of patient reported outcome measures because I'm like, well, my patient can't participate in that. Right. Like, cause it's like they have dementia and like, they don't even know like what they did five minutes ago, potentially. So like, how are they going to give me a rating that is self-aware uh, to any degree? So when you are working with caregivers, you have a role where you're communicating with them. Like it, whether it's a care, a family caregiver, like at home or an aide who is a caregiver who understands like how to answer those questions. It's extremely important to get that insight to see where our role is because we have one, not to say that every single person with dementia, like is in need of skilled services at all times. That's not necessarily the case, but like if there are unmet needs, we need to figure out, is there a way that I can use my skills, which often feel like just common sense to us. Like we need to give ourselves more credit to know that we do have skills that can benefit in those situations. Yeah. Thank you. Talk to me a little bit about, was there something that just happened with billing that you can now bill for caregiver time? Yes. So my understanding is that we can now bill for caregiver training when the patient is not present. And so before you could do that, but the patient had to be involved and they had to be present. Now, for individuals with dementia, that's super problematic because, for example, 
one of my patients, the issue was that they were constantly believing that their spouse was being unfaithful to them. And so they were, they had paranoia. They had all this, like, um, these feelings and delusions that they were cheating on them. And so to train that caregiver and some techniques of validation and how to deal with that in front of the person who's already paranoid about them being unfaithful would have been so ineffective, right? We would just feed into the paranoia and they could in no way participate. So now it is, I I don't know the exact code or specifics, but they've passed that. We can now train caregivers even when the patient is not present and that it is beneficial for the patient to not be present. Obviously, if we're going to train to transfer something like that, it's more helpful to be hands-on. There's these kind of specific situations. Um, the only caveat there is that it has to be an unpaid caregiver. So we can't do it with aides who are paid to be there. But for family caregivers who are unpaid, we can. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting caveat. I did not know that. Talk a little bit about, because I know you did some, this is something that was really fascinating to me that I've recently learned just about with, with things with my son. And I know you just talked about it a little bit on Instagram was caregivers can get paid for or reimbursed for their role with with providing care. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in some states, a lot of times it's a it's a Medicaid program, but that caregivers can be hired by local care agencies as a caregiver and be assigned their loved one. And so they can be paid through that system uh, for however, usually it's it's not 40 hours a week or, you know, the actual amount of time they're carrying, which is like 24 seven. Um, but a lot of times I've seen it's like 20 hours a week, a caregiver can get paid. And so, but there are very specific eligibility requirements uh, when it comes to those kind of things. And that's the most common way that people are getting paid. Other things are grants. They're like hilarity for charity, which is like Seth Rogen and his wife's charity. They have caregiver grant programs where they can pay for respite for a family member to be able to leave the home or even just to take a nap and have someone there with their loved one for a while. Now, in 2024, the guide program is rolling out, and this is a Medicare and Medicaid services program that uh, we don't have a ton of information about, like, as of the time of this recording, but it sounds like Medicare is going to start paying for caregivers to be trained and for respite, which could look like adult day programs, or it could be in-home care, which Medicare previously was never paying for. So that could be huge. And the, and the goal here is for to decrease nursing home admissions and overall Medicare expenses if caregivers are trained and if they get breaks every once in a while. So that's really exciting. Yeah, that that is so exciting. I know, I remember when I heard about some services for my son and I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing because I could technically, my mother could get paid for the help that she does with us now. And it's hard because I don't want to burn her out from helping us out so much, but also she's my mother, but also she needs to do other things and can't quote unquote work for me for free for, you know, so many hours. So it's when I heard that that was a possibility, I was like, this is amazing. And I just recently started looking more into this. And then I saw you posted about it the other day. So it's like, this is, I I think it's so smart because it's like, you want to leave your loved ones with someone you trust. Right. Mm -hmm. And why shouldn't they get paid for their time since it technically is, is a job for which, which sinks. (laughs) That's to say that, but it, but it is in in some aspects. Absolutely. And first of all, it's important for 
SLPs to know these kind of things. Like, just be aware. We don't need to be experts about it. Like, we don't have to help them fill out an application or anything. But if you're seeing a caregiver who is burnt out and overwhelmed, just knowing, hey, I think there are programs that you can get financial assistance for respite. The best thing to do to tell anyone is to contact their local area agency on aging. Every county in the United States has one, and they are going to be the hub of all information about aging services in that area. So if you can just say, this thing exists, call this number, call Google this thing, and and uh, look to see if you qualify, because it can be life-changing. Yeah, thank you. I know I remember when I was doing fees in a lot of the nursing homes, I always would exhibit at the Center for Aging conference that they had mm-hmm. every year. And it was just, I, there were so many programs that I was like, why do people not know about these? Like, why are these not widely spread or publicized? So, you know, again, thank you for the work that you're doing because this stuff is so important and, and there is help and there, there are resources out there that, like you said, could be life-changing. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about like creative spaces. So like I am known as like the bathroom SLP. I have, okay. I, I spoke at ASHA about SLPs in the bathroom. And yes. so I like talking about what our role could be in those kind of places. Yes. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Because I, I don't think many SLPs signed up to be an SLP knowing that their place of work would be in the bathroom. But there is a major role for us there. So take it away, Adria. I am really passionate about SLPs being in the bathroom. And I know that sounds really funny, but my turning point as far as my thoughts about this and our role in ADLs, especially hygiene ADLs, like showering and toileting and getting dressed, was all with a patient we'll call Peggy. And Peggy, I was seeing for speech therapy services, she had dementia, moderate dementia. I think she was in stage five at this point on the global deterioration scale. And we were working on creating some Montessori-based activities, which I could do a whole conversation about those and how beneficial they can be. But we are working on some memory things and getting her really acclimated to the memory care she was in. And occasionally, though, when I would come onto the memory care unit to see her, she would be in the shower and they would be trying to get her cleaned up. And she was screaming like she was being attacked, was terrified. The, ner- the aides would come out with scratches on them and they would just, it was getting to the point where even though this woman had just moved in, they were talking to the family about sending her out for Jerry psych, sending her out for medication changes. I knew she was at high risk of getting psych medications, being sedated, and also maybe even potentially having to leave the community. And so I just remember thinking, I have no idea what I what's going on in that shower room or what I could do about it or if it's a skilled service that an SLP can do but my my heart just told me like I need to get in there and so that was the very first time that I like stepped into the bathroom with someone with dementia uh, in a very specific way like that and so I, I remember just saying to the aides like next time you shower her can I help and just the first day I really just like kind of observed and assessed what was going on, like saw how many people it was taking, three people taking off her clothes, wrangling her under the water. She was so scared. No one, everyone was trying to do it so fast. So anyway, you all know what this looks like. I mean, we've all probably heard or seen or experienced in some way, some of these combative moments. And 
I just took, I just was like, you know, this is a communication issue. This is not an OT like, oh, we, she can't physically shower herself. She can't physically reach all her nooks and crannies. You know, this is like completely across the board, a communication issue. She didn't understand what was happening. They were not telling her what they were going to be doing. And she didn't have the capacity to ex- understand any of this experience. And so I worked a little, like I worked every week. That was our session was going in there and finding techniques to approach her about this, to like get her in an environment that she felt safer. We ended up decreasing the number of people in the room to just one. And as long as we were doing it in a way that made her feel safe and that she understood, then she didn't need three people. And that was also what was scaring her. I mean, taking off your clothes in front of an audience of three people. And so I was actually reported to my director of nursing by a coder that I worked with for why is she in the shower? She's speech, you know. And so I, I've experienced this time and time again since, probably like hundreds of times since, of, of helping people in the bathroom. But it's all a communication issue. And I love training and educating SLPs about what our roles could look like. So I don't know, Teresa, did you ever go in the bathroom with any of your patients? What Wait, I did, but about? not because I it was, it was almost like, you know, you're mid-session and, and they're like, I've got to go to the bathroom. Will you come with me? And there's nobody else. You're the only person there to help them. So you have to be yeah. the one to assist them. But, you know, you're you're so right with everything that you said. There's so much that goes into communication with that. And, and in such a private, intimate setting, too, it's it's no wonder that we're seeing things that we call behaviors. And, and I, I'm learning right. a different language with my son, too, of what not to call behavior, oh, yeah. communication <laughs> issues and, and things like that. And and it's you're you're so right, and I, and I think, gosh, that's that's definitely something that we could use a lot more training in as well. So, talk to I'd love to hear more about this, Adria. How, how did you sort of break down those walls with? Because obviously, toileting, anything, showering, that's that's OT's territory, right? Yeah. And how do we work work with them and explain to them this is more of a communication issue than an actual, you know, OT type thing. So what Asha tells us is that everything we need to do in, in the code of ethics is that we everything we need to do needs to be out of competence. Like we need to be competent. So I, I first thing is you need to feel comfortable and be trained to do if you're going to be doing hands on things, which you don't even have to uh, to make a difference. But if you are, you need to be trained just like any other aid or caregiver in that building would. And and when I was working in assisted living memory care, aides were not even CNAs. They were. I remember asking, like, you look familiar. Where have you worked before? Thinking I'd worked in the same building. And she was like, Texas Roadhouse. And I was like, oh, okay. So we have no caregiving experience here. Like, if they can be trained to do hands-on transfers and clean people and all that, so can we. Like, we can handle that. So we get trained in the same way. It can be documented um, to help with liability if that's ever something that's brought up. So be competent about how you're doing this, first of all. And then secondly, so, for example, I had a woman, uh, we'll call her Libby, and she was taking forever in the shower, forever, like hours and hours. And, but she needed physical assistance to get in and out. And so obviously the water, like we were in assisted living, so there was a ton of hot water and it's used, never running out. And that wasn't really helpful. The aides were not initiating shower because they knew as soon as they did, it'd be a forever process because she kept rewashing the same parts of her body over and over again. This was the most clear 
communication, cognitive communication intervention that I've ever done that I think is a great example. Because when I got in there with her, she had all of her supplies at like readily available she could grab. And she had such short-term memory that she didn't remember what she's already done and what she hasn't. And so knowing what I know about external memory aids and visual schedules and all of those things that we use in other populations, I wrote on the wall all the parts of her body that she needed to wash. And in the order that I got a feel for that she liked to wash them. And I said, you know what, Libby? I am so distracted. I'm so forgetful myself that I'm going to write down all the parts of your body because I want to make sure you get thoroughly cleaned. I'm speaking her language, right? Like she loves to be thoroughly cleaned too much. So, and so I'm like, okay, so after we wash each part of your body, we're going to check it off. And so I would take all of the supplies out of the shower and I would only hand her what she needed so that she didn't have control of to, as to what she was going to be doing next. So we would wash something. I would show her on the wall. We'd check it off. We move on to the next. Inevitably, we get to a point she would ask to wash her hair again. And I'd say, oh, Libby, let's look up here. Looks like you've already washed it. And so let's move on to the next. I got her down to a 20-minute shower. Easy peasy. She felt safe. She felt secure. She felt thoroughly cleaned. I was able to move on with my day. It was communication. It wasn't a physical issue. It was pure short-term memory affecting her ability to navigate, if she could more effectively communicate in this situation, she could understand and comprehend what I was saying as to the reason why we didn't need to wash her hair 12 times. Yes, yeah. hair would be easier. And so things like that that are just like using our skills that we use in other contexts in the shower, in the bathroom, whatever that looks like. I love that stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Adria. I think, and especially as a caregiver, I think that's, that's worth its weight in gold, right? If you're someone that this is your mother and they're, they're insisting on taking two hour showers and you're just beyond frustrated and that's your wits end and it, it just spirals, right? You're, you don't want to go take care of mom tonight because you know, it's going to be a two hour fight in the shower. And so thank you. Cause these, these, these are just, they're really, really, really valuable. So thank you for sharing them. Well, and I, I can tell you that actual, that woman before we figured out that trick I have never had to step out of a situation and like scream into like a pillow until that day because I saw exactly what was happening and it was I got into the situation where we were at hour and 15 minutes into a shower and I was like you're done please be done like you are you've already done that and she did not understand she was going back and forth we were I was doing all the things I teach people to never do you know explain and reason and all of that because I just needed to move on to my next patient because I didn't want to work 10 hours that day and I was getting so frustrated that I had a step out of the bathroom and I went into her bedroom and I picked up the pillow and I screamed into it. And I was like, Whoa. and then I went back in and I'm like, this is real life. Like, that's the moment where I'm like, I'm a caregiver too. Like, I have to do this too, you know? But yeah, so the difference of that experience and then like two weeks later, figuring out this thing that helps is such a big difference. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And this is, this is how we learn. <laughs> yes. So I think, you know, I said earlier that I was like reported by ACODA for being outside of my bounds and they thought I was duplicating services or something like that. And that's unfortunate. Like it's unfortunate when we have difficult relationships with other therapists, but 
what is so important is uh, repairing those or being proactive at the very beginning to make sure that we are collaborating with other medical professionals because it is best practice and is what is best for our patients. And so I learned, especially when I would like go to a new community or if I was working PRN from the get go to talk to the PTs or OTs I was working with, especially and say, Hey, I'm a speech therapist, but I just want to let you know, you might see me in the bathroom. You might see me doing things that seem kind of outside of my bounds. But listen, I'm focusing on communication. I don't care like how thorough they are during wiping. I don't care how far they can ambulate during, you know, a task. What I'm looking at is what am I, how am I communicating to them? How are they receiving that communication? And then they're communicating back. So if there's ever any questions you have about what I'm doing, ask me because I would love to teach you. I would love to learn from you. I might ask questions that seem kind of strange, but I'm just trying to learn because I want to be a good team here. And being able to kind of start conversations and start relationships like that have been a huge game changer for me. I am an introvert and I don't naturally like connect with I'm not the person that's like hey how was your weekend I'm just like I come in guns blazing like okay here's this patient and this is what we need to do and so I'm aware of the fact that sometimes I come in hot but making other people kind of understand what your role is and how you are so open to helping them with whatever or putting your heads together and, and solving a complex problem together it is so fun and I find that to be super effective have you ever like had therapist relationships that are just kind of like go off the tracks and you're like, I wish I could just start over. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, it, what's so interesting is like, if you, if you, you know, pull the telescope lens out, right. It's like, we all generally want the same thing. We all want our yeah. patients to get better. We are all fighting for the same things essentially, but we, you know, egos get involved. We step on each other's toes inadvertently and, from there, it can just, yeah, I, I love, I love the word repair. I've used it a lot with my toddler lately. I love that you just said repairing yeah. conversations, you know, with, with coworkers and colleagues, because we can all just sort of start over and say, you know, yes, we are all working towards the same thing. And I'm sorry if I didn't explain my role or what, what my point of view is. I think everybody just wants to be heard and have their point of view and perspective heard and understood. Yeah. And to also come like, we were talking about caregivers, of course, but like, to be able to work together on a team of, of therapists, but then also like with nursing, which that can always be strained relationships sometimes. But like if, if everyone works together, like of course in an ideal world, how refreshing that is for caregivers, like to say, like, listen, we know that the well-being of this patient ultimately falls on the shoulders of the caregiver. They are going to be the ones that are awake at night worrying about them. And if we can kind of collaborate with each other, be creative, solve problems, and also like educate and just have this united front, they feel so supported. You know, I, I talk a lot about dementia professionally, but also my grandmother has dementia and she's living in a nursing home. And my mother is like the primary um, caregiver and, and she like seeing the stress that she comes back from the nursing home with about like when one person tells her one thing and another person tells them something else and that she can tell that people are arguing it's it's unnecessary and it makes me sick 
And I, I say when she comes back from the nursing home, because when I go there and I see that, I'm like, I call it out. I'm like, I know what's happening here. You're going to take care of my mini mall. And that is your number one priority. But it, it's so important. It's so important to collaborate. Like I said, it's best practice, bottom line. And it's really important to to take the time to acknowledge that and do your part, whatever that looks like. Yeah. I, I think the hard part is too, is, is there so many different specialties, right? Like we think about, you know, okay, I'm an SLP, but am I an SLP generalist or am I an SLP dementia specialist, right? Or a swallowing specialist or, and I think sometimes lines get blurred and, and things get, there get conflicts get developed because people don't realize, oh, this really is that person's specialty. They really know a lot about this area. And it's not just that they think that they're trying to insert, you know, some knowledge or that they think they're trying to overstep. It's that this person really, truly understands this. And that's why I think it's so important to sort of be more part of the ecosystem. If you are working in a nursing home or assisted living or skilled nursing, telling people about, you know, this really is my passion. This is what I, this is what I have really extra training. And yes, I can see also, you know, voice and swallowing and, and, aphasia, but, but dementia is my true passion. And so I know a lot about this and, you know, I might, if I get really excited or if I seem to overstep, it's only because this is my true passion. And I've done that a few times and it's, it's so helpful because it sort of puts everybody's guard down. Like, okay, that's why she's so like, I've definitely done that about swallowing cases before in the nursing home. I'm like, no, this is my jam. You guys like, this is my jam and I am dying on this hill and I'm not backing down. Like, so yeah. So I think it's just, it's helpful when we just communicate that, no, these really are our true passions. And on the other side of that, if, if you find yourself deep into a situation where you don't feel confident and you feel like there's someone else who could better serve their needs, that's, it's, that's the same role as you, like refer, you know, like it's respectable. Nobody's, nobody's going to bat their eyes at that. Like it is, we all need to just do what's best for our patients. You know, it's not that easy. <laughs> Oh, I, I wish it was just that easy. I know. I wish it was. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Adria. I, I appreciate you so much. I love everything you're doing. I, you're, you're a blessing to the, to the whole dementia community and, and to skilled nursing and SLPs in general. So thank you so much. Do you have any, any final thoughts? Thanks. Yeah. No, I, um, I appreciate being on your podcast. I love talking about dementia. So, uh, thanks for giving me the platform to do so. But I just, I encourage SLPs to, um, to just learn more, be open to working with people with dementia. And I think sometimes I will get in conversations with SLPs who might be inspired by my content or just like, I want to, you know, I want to change the lives of every person with dementia in my building. I, I always just encourage, like, start small, start with one person. If you feel like you've, you want to learn more about evidence-based practice in this uh, area. If you want to to be better at it, pick one patient and give it your all. And um, don't try to pick up eight people at once and 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 go crazy because it can be overwhelming. But give yourself credit. Also, we have a lot of skills that other people don't, and we take them for granted. So, yeah, document it and uh, give yourself a pat on the back occasionally. Yeah, awesome. Um, tell the people where they can find you. What platforms are you on? I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Be Light Care. All right. Awesome. Thank you again, my friend. Of course. Thanks for having me. 
And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.